Welcome to Against the Grain, a podcast for natural products trailblazers. Join New Hope Network and Giannuzzi Lewenden as they explore how to stay ahead of the trend curve in a COVID-19 world. Hi all, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Jessica Rubino and today I'm joined by Kara Posner and Anthony Uzzolino, partners at Giannuzzi Lewenden Law. Kara, Anthony, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks for having us on. So today we are going to talk about how natural products brands can best position themselves for a successful merger or acquisition. I know that this is a hot topic and our listeners are going to be very eager to learn more about this. So I want to start, obviously, your expertise in the legal world and really understanding how companies can enhance brand value through legal work. Can you just start by kind of mapping out what that looks like. Sure. So, you know, throughout the life cycle of a company, you know, it'll face many challenges and many decisions. And a lot of them are going to touch on legal issues. And, you know, we always advise our clients to, you know, tackle each one with insight and with focus. And we look at the legal work that we do is not simply revising contracts, but really trying to add value. So you can build a company which is, you know, saleable, transferable asset. And, you know, with respect to that, you know, there's a whole bunch of different areas where we see where you can build brand value um, through legal work. Um, Some of those areas are just, you know, what type of entity do you want to be? Uh, what will that entity look like? Will it be, uh, you know, a corporation, an LLC, a B Corp, that type of stuff? There's intellectual property protection, you know, regulatory issues to address, uh, supply chain issues, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. And happy to go through each one a little bit more. And I could, you know, pass the baton on to Kara. But we do see a lot of opportunity here to add value. Um, for our clients and really enhance the brand through uh, legal work and really a targeted approach. Thanks so much, Anthony. And yeah, Kara, it would be great to maybe elaborate on a couple of those areas, maybe the ones that you think are most critical to enhancing brand value and, and how you might go about doing that. Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so, you know, on the topic of IP, I feel we feel that that's, you know, that's where you need to start because at the end of the day, when you're selling your company to a strategic or to a financial buyer, what they're most concerned about is that they're buying an asset that they will own, you know, free and clear. For example, um, you want to make sure you own your product formulas. If there is a flavor house that is merely licensing that to you, and at any point could pull it, then, well, you don't have something you can deliver. Um, You can't sell that asset, or at least you can't do it without significant renegotiation and potentially, you know, significant financial commitment to make that happen. Um, On the supply chain side of things that Anthony touched on, um, there's ways that you can, you know, get a head start in your category or at least accelerate in your category um, uh, by putting in legal protections at the co-packer level, you know, having exclusivity or non-compete on your co-packer for certain types of 
uh, products, not making your similar product or a similar product to yours for somebody else, or if that's not possible, you know, at least being first in line for volume. Um, having the ability to, to terminate that relationship creates leverage at certain points um, along, the, along the life of your company. Um, and, you know, the ability to expand and change production uh, if you outgrow your co-packer, if they're not meeting your needs, if somebody else can give you a better price. Um, you know, we, we've seen a lot of uh, war stories in that regard in that, you know, you sign a contract, you're eager to get started and you, you don't necessarily think about the future. You sign an exclusive agreement with someone saying, I'll buy all my product from you. But what happens when you outgrow that co-packer? The contract doesn't address it. So you just start buying from someone else because you want to run your business. And then, you know, five years later, the strategic that's acquiring you, you know, doing their diligence said, well, you had an exclusive with this co-packer, but you have three other ones, you know, how was that resolved? And we've literally seen that resolved in a payment to the co-packer where you were breaching the exclusivity, even though they physically couldn't fulfill the orders. So those are the things that we're looking at. We're not just looking at whether it's written correctly, but what does this mean five years from now, seven years from now, and how could it trip you up? Um, uh, another important category, I think, and um, Anthony didn't preview this one, but it was something I was giving some thought to before we started, is how you incentivize your employees and your service providers. You can really create brand value there um, through the way you structure those contracts. For example, you hire a VP of sales and you give them you know, 1% stock option vesting over four years. What does that really guarantee you? At the heart of it, it really guarantees you that the person doesn't get fired for four years. That doesn't really translate into brand value. Whereas if you structure it for, you know, half of it vests based over time and half of it based on performance hurdles, then you've really created incentives in there that, you know, if all of that vests, it's because something good happened, not just because the person stuck around. Um, so there's countless other ways that that legal work can create that value, but those are sort of the the ones that come to mind first. Well, thanks so much uh, to both of you for outlining that. I mean, a big takeaway is there's a lot, there is a lot of legal work that should be done to enhance brand value. And I like how you also touched on, you know, thinking about the here and now, but also looking ahead into the future and, and what brand value will look like three, five, seven years from now. And so that's, that's so important to note. Um, I want to talk a little bit about when investors are, you know, looking at a company, what makes them the most nervous in diligence? I'm sure everyone will want to hear um, the answer to this, but but what would you say, Anthony? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think this applies to investors, but it also applies to potential acquirers of companies. And I guess when you're selling your company, there's a set of representations and warranties called fundamental representations and warranties. And they're, they have that name for a reason because the acquirer really, really cares about those. And they're supposed to be the base rock, uh, the bedrock of your company. Um, and those typically touch on things like authority, cap table, taxes, um, ownership of IP, you know, who's your broker. And they could, go beyond that as well. Sometimes it's not ownership of IP, but I think these are all things that um, are fundamental to the company and that investors and acquirers really care about. And um, just to touch on a few, uh, cap table, for example, that's 
you have to have control over your cap table and and have a good sense as to you know who should be on it and who shouldn't be on it. And it sounds pretty basic, but you know sometimes it's a little bit more tricky than you think. Did you hire a service provider and say that they're going to get options or stock and then it didn't work out and you just have an email floating out there? Well, is that service provider going to come back and say that they own a piece of your company? Or did email say that they'll get 5% of your company? And is that 5% mean 5% on the day you wrote the email or 5% on the day you sold the company? So those types of issues um, are something that give an investor, give an acquirer pause. And it's something that they expect certainty on. So that's something that we always stress in the beginning to take care of things, to do it right the first time so that you don't, you're not worrying about this when you're going to raise money or you're going to sell your company. Um, IP is another area and Coward did a great job of stressing the value add that we can provide for IP. Um, but you know, most of these companies are brands. So making sure that you have your IP buttoned up is essential. Um, making sure that your trademark filings are up to date. Um, and I'm seeing lot, a lot more recently uh, investors and particularly acquirers asking companies to represent that they've had all of their employees and their service providers sign NDAs, uh, sign invention assignment agreements, uh, and really act prudently with respect to their trade secrets and their recipes and their formulas. So that's another area where I think uh, acquirers and, and potential investors really want to see things buttoned up. And if you can't have it buttoned up, it does make them a bit nervous. Yeah. And a related issue, and it's not quite IP, it's more in the regulatory field, but it's something you often deal with at the same moment because you're talking about the product label or the product website or marketing materials is making sure, and this is this is critical, we have so many clients that come to us and maybe they're not quite ready for corporate law engagement with us, but we say you have to get your labels reviewed, you have to get your website reviewed because there's so much law out there that frankly our firm isn't even experts in, and that's why we rely on the experts that talk about what you can say on your product, um, how your ingredients have to be ordered what font size there is. And there are literally lawyers who wake up in the morning, walk to Whole Foods, take pictures of products that they're pretty sure are wrong and send demand letters until 5 p.m. that day. And, you know, basically shake brands down for uh, violations of law based on wrong labeling. And by the time you're going to sell, you know, you're talking about a lot of product in the marketplace and a lot of history, you know, months and years of wrong labeling and you know the financial impact of that should a lawyer um, write one of those letters and should you ignore it or decide to fight it, it could be really, really big and it's such an avoidable thing. Um, so making sure not only your trademarks and all that is buttoned up, but that you understand and you have an expert looking at the, the, you know, the regulations applicable to your product. That's such a great point, Kara. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's something that we're constantly looking at at New Hope Network. We have a standards department and they review every product that's going to be a part of our natural products expos or advertising with us. And there are so many nuances in that regulatory and labeling space that 
you know, many companies just aren't paying attention to. And in terms of really building your brand and being prepared for long-term growth, um, I feel like that's something that's often overlooked. So great point. And I know that space uh, pretty intimately, but our standards department are the real experts in that. I love how you both through this have been talking about, you know, referencing the different partners. You all certainly are amazing partners to your clients. I've had the opportunity to connect with many of your clients, which are amazing companies in the natural product space about the importance of finding the right partners. And I want to talk about that in the context of investment and acquisition and really looking at, you know, what are how can companies ensure that they're finding those right partners to keep their brand identity and values intact, whether it be through a merger or an acquisition? Really, what should companies be looking for in, in truly good partners? Uh, yeah, I mean, Anthony, I'm happy to take uh, that one. It's something um, we, we deal with a lot. So I think the the, the biggest factor in how much you'll have the ability to control brand identity through exit is you know the structure of that deal. If you're selling 100%, um, obviously you have to trust your acquirer to continue to carry the torch and carry on the mission. And at that point, hopefully you feel very comfortable about the decision you're making and you have the right people advising you and um, you know investors and 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 everybody's happy um, because you know you have to kind of be sure in that moment that that this is what you want because you as a founder may not have more than an employment role or an advisory role going forward um and you know that's 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 a big transition from owning your company to perhaps just being an employee or an advisor um if you're selling less than a majority and you know you're taking on a significant investment from a from a strategic or from a financial uh, party, you know, I think the big question is who controls the timing vis-a-vis -vis the ultimate exit and, you know, what does that look like? And there's all sorts of permutations of, of how to structure that. And that's where, you know, perhaps our firm and the, the things that we offer is where we offer the most value because we just see so much of it. Um, and then, you know, there's kind of an in-between where you're selling a majority, um, but you're still going to own a significant portion of the company. And you want to make sure that the structure of that deal accounts for that and that you have significant and meaningful participation in the business going forward, um, especially on things like budget, because what you're really doing is you're selling half of an asset that you built and you still own half of it, but you don't control it. So, um, you know, keeping controls and input over things like, you know, material decision making and, and budget um, is critical. And then in that particular fact pattern where you've sold a majority and, and you still own something, whether that's 49 percent or 20 percent, um, th there has to be some mechanism for an exit, or at least that's what we stress, um, because otherwise you could be stuck um, forever. And that's a decision any founder can make. But, um, you know, generally we would try to structure in some sort of second step where the minority investor or the minority shareholders or the founders um, could could exit the business at a certain point and based on certain metrics. And, you know, obviously both sides have to, to come to an agreement on what that looks like. But you never want to get in a, po a position where you're, you know, you're stuck in your company with no control forever. Um, so there, there's lots of ways to structure that as well. Are either of you noticing like a trend in a certain direction of, 
you know, how involved founders want to be or how involved the acquiring company wants those founders to be. I know I've seen a lot more of these acquisitions where the acquiring company is really looking to those founders and their business models and the impact that they're having on people and planet, especially in this natural products industry. They're really looking to that as something that they they want to hold on to and they really want to learn from them. Is that something that you're seeing more of and what other kind of shifts are you seeing just in terms of um, where things are going with those those models that you know companies are keeping in place through acquisitions? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm certainly seeing a recognition of the value that the founders and key employees play within these companies and these brands, and acquirers are recognizing that. And even if it is 100% sale, I think they realize that they can't necessarily innovate or pivot as quickly as folks who you know are on the ground doing it every day. So they certainly see the value in in what the founders and the, the key employees bring for these brands. And I do see an effort um, on, their, on their behalf trying to keep these folks on and engaged post-closing. And I, I think that's good for the brand because it does help the brand maintain its identity. And I think it's good for the, for the strategic because the people who best know how to grow the company in my opinion, are the people who have been there doing it for however long, you know, since the company's inception. So I agree with you. Uh, that's a trend that I've been seeing and a, a recognition that I think is long overdue. It's refreshing to see a lot of that. And I think we're seeing the positive impacts that it's having on the acquirer, which is um, definitely from my work in the natural products industry, a pretty significant shift from me being like five, seven years ago. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you you address the ability of some of these young brands and, and founders to really be, you know, they're hands on, they're in it and doing the work and understanding what the business needs. And a lot of times that's coming from these really small companies who are seeing good early success. But I want to look at that piece a little bit, just the size of a company and and when it's mature enough or ready to be acquired. So I think my first part of the question is, how is how does a company know if it's too small to be acquired? And then the second part of that is, you know, what is the right size for an acquisition? Is there a right size? I think the first question is, is a company too small? Um, it always depends. Um, it depends on, you know, kind of the personal and professional goals of the founders and sort of where they see themselves. Um, and we see a totally, you know, huge spectrum of, of what that looks like. You know, there, there are some founders who have a, a certain number in their mind or a certain uh, amount of time. And, you know, sometimes you have to work with that. There are other founders who, um, you know, have a certain mission or a certain point at which they feel like the job would be done and they'd be okay handing handing over the baton. Um, so too small, um, the answer I don't think is no one's too small. It's uh, kind of a personal decision. And then kind of piggybacking on that, it depends on how the company has been run and how it's grown, um, whether something's, you know, whether a company's too small or, or a, a whether it's able to sell at any given moment, because, you know, once you start taking on outside investments, the ability to control those key decisions and, and those 
um, you know, perhaps even your acquisition date and your acquisition uh, terms, I mean, that changes. So if you've brought on outside investors, you may not have full autonomy anymore to make to make that call. So you may be too small, not because you're too small, but because you have an investor who's come in at a certain valuation and doesn't feel like their money has worked for them enough. So it's very important when you're raising money to think about how those approval rights that you give away and how those, those blocking rights are going to impact what you thought was the right number for you or the right date for you um, and, and make sure that you, know, you and your investor and your partners are aligned. So it sounds like there isn't necessarily a right size. There are so many other variables outside of, quote, size of a company um, that have to be considered. But yeah, I think you touched on a lot of things. Anthony, would you add anything to that or from your lens? Is there a sweet spot? I'll tell you that I used to think there was a sweet spot. You reach, you know, X amount of revenue and you grow Y percent a year. And this is the formula to succeed and to sell for a whole bunch of money. Um, I don't think that necessarily applies anymore. Uh, what I've seen in the last few years is the rise of, you know, strategics coming in and wanting to take a piece of a company, come in as an investor and see how things go and potentially do an acquisition later on or uh, buy companies that are a bit on the smaller side and, um, you know, incubate that company and help it grow. So I don't, to Kara's point, I think that there's no one size fits all uh, solution or answer here. Um, but I have seen a trend where smaller companies are having more and more opportunities to pair up with strategics and if they want to, to sell their company. And I think that that's a great thing because I think the more options out there, the more ability for the founders and the shareholders to find something that really fits their needs and you know, meets their goals. Yeah. And one thing just to add on that, you know, Anthony kind of mentioned it, it used to look like X revenue and Y growth. Um, and, and there's been a huge shift in, you know, what acquirers deem most important. I'd say probably five or seven years ago, virtually every company we were selling was still losing money. It was all about top line revenue. And there's been, and this is probably preaching to the choir to this audience, but there's been a huge shift and a refocus on profitability, um, which used to just be frankly strange. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of profitable clients, but so the you know the appetite of the acquirers has changed, and you know correspondingly the, the founders and the brands have had to adjust. So the timing of you know acquisition and what's too small or too big is really all over the place because now it's about you know that that sort of inherent value and and what you bring to the table in terms of profitability. Um, thanks, Kara. So I have one one final question, um, just because you both are so close to this work, so intimately involved in working with all these great brands, seeing these acquisitions come to fruition. If you were investing in a natural products company or acquiring a natu natural products company, what is the one thing that you would be looking for in that company? Anthony, I will start with you. The one thing, this is actually a, a tough question. Um, I, to me, I, I'd just be looking at the team, the team around the brand. And to me, that just feels like the most important thing. Obviously, the product is important, um, but the group of people that you're investing in or that are behind the brand that you're buying, to me, that's really where the magic comes from. So that's what I'd look at. 
I love that. The power of an amazing team. Um, absolutely right there with you. Thanks, Anthony. What about you, Kara? Yeah, I'm pretty angry because Anthony stole my answer. Um, <laughs> but maybe maybe that's a good thing because I think it means it's the right one. Um, I, I think Anthony's spot on. It's it would be about the team. We've you know we've we deal with a lot of investors on the other side and sometimes on the same side. Um, and it's you know investors like to invest in people, not companies. And so the people are the are the ones that you know really drive the value and and have the, you know, the mission. And so if you have a good team, um, I think that's the most, you know, the most valuable thing you can offer. Well, I love that, especially coming from two people that I know are part of an incredible team. And thank you so much. I mean, a ton of great information here. I know that that our brands are really going to appreciate hearing this as well as our investor community. So really appreciate you both taking the time. Thanks so much for being here. And it was really nice connecting with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Had a lot of fun. Thanks for having us on.